welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Die Straits calling Elvis live from 1992. It's because I've got the great pleasure to welcome Phil Palmer here, Die Straits guitarist, and um, doing some shows with the Die Straits legacy. He's got a huge back catalogue of work as a guitarist over the last 50 years with many, many artists. So I'm talking to Phil today about Die Straits Legacy as well as that broader work. First of all, obviously, uh, Die Straits Legacy, one of the um, the shows that you've got coming up is on um, January the 15th at the uh, Indigo O2, and then you're off on, on some more worldwide shows. Are, are they rearranged dates for, for you and the band? Uh, yes, they pretty much are. Originally, we were, we were due to do about 60 shows in 2020, um, and they all got rescheduled. So we're, we're picking up on some of those. Uh, we've got a cruise as well. We're doing one of those rock cruises down the Caribbean. Uh, there's, I think, three or four weeks in Brazil, South America, and some American dates. So, yeah, I think um, after the uh, the initial date the, the indigo we're, we're off for about three or four months and the great thing about dire straits legacy is that you re- remain an authentic sound of dire straits you've obviously yourself and alan and mel etc have got strong connections with the band but you've got people like trevor horn as well adding to that so it's a, it's a really great show it is a great show i mean the music kind of speaks for itself i mean the songs of mark are just a joy to play they always were and um, hopefully they're a joy to listen to as well. That's the plan. I mean, uh, what we've done so far has been very well received. The band is amazing, and we just we have a lot of fun doing it as well because it's uh, it's in our blood. Reading your book, Session Man, the on every street tour, Dire Straits uh, about thirty years ago sounded over two hundred shows. Sounded incredible. And um, what was it like uh, that, that tour for you? It was a, a wonderful experience um, and a great, it was like a, a summer camp for for musicians, basically. We just had a great time. We went to some amazing countries and amazing venues. The response was always fabulous. Uh, the, the audiences were always huge and um, enthusiastic. And uh, I, I loved every minute of it, really. What was it like playing with Mark? Because um, I remember reading about you playing with um, Mark on on every street, the track, and, and playing that live, and it was almost a, a sort of battle between you and Mark on who could play the sort of quietest and with most sensitivity. Yep, um, it was a bit, it became a bit of a battle. We used to the dynamics of Dire Straits were always the difficult thing to achieve. Uh, you know, with a big band like that, there was nine people in the band to to all feel the the dynamics and and the Valentandos at the same time was was the the hardest thing of all. But so me me and Mark would stand in the in the centre of the stage under spotlights, mm. playing that part that that figure at the end of on every street and staring at each other in the eyes and sort of daring each other to make a mistake. It was it was always a, a good moment and uh, you know, it stays with me. There's gotta be a record in you someplace. Hey, you gotta be on somebody's books. A low down picture of your face. Your injured looks. Yeah, 
And another thing notable about Dire Straits Legacies is the album that you made about four or so years ago, Free Chord Trick. What was the origins of uh, wanting to do some more original material with, with the band? It was just one of those things. I mean, uh, we were in America. We were working with Steve Ferroni. Steve Ferroni has a studio in his in his uh, garage, actually, a really nice little studio. And um, Alan and I had been sort of dabbling with writing some new songs, and we thought, you know, we're here, us three, and, and Pino Palladino was around the corner because he lives there now. So we just really we sat down in, in Steve's garage and, and put, uh, about a dozen tracks down in the space of a couple of weeks and uh, it became an album uh, it was just a, a, really a way to explore where we think Dire Straits would have probably gone mm. had they stuck together you know and you know we had fun doing it Yeah. 
And you've got a, a fantastic book out, Session Man, which covers the time with Dire Straits, but obviously the origins of you as a guitarist and in the music industry. And um, I recall that it's, it was through um, Uncle Ray and Dave Davis and, and involvement with Conk that started you sort of into the, the industry. That's right, yeah, back in the early 70s. Um, <clears throat> I went to see Uncle Dave three or four days ago, yeah. and it's the first time we've actually sat down and spoken to each other wow. since, since then, really. And it was um, it was quite an um, emotional moment, and um, because we, we we drifted apart for lots of reasons, as it is explained in the book, really. But um, mm. I was very close to Dave when you know I was a teenager, and obviously um, he was you know he'd been quite important in my evolution as a guitar player. And so <clears throat> it was a shame to uh, to drift apart like that, but it was it's great to catch up with him again a couple of days ago. So uh, all good there. I think you were originally Dave's guitar tech, I think, and, and you went with the, the Kinks on the US tour about 50 years ago now. Yeah, it was 1972, I think it was. Uh, and yeah, it was a great experience for me. I mean, I was already playing and um, mm. as, uh, you know, in bands and stuff and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I went to, to America with the Kinks in 1972 and... Uh, it was sort of, sort of um, baptism of fire into the rock and roll world. Uh, we stayed at uh, the Hyatt House in Los Angeles, and uh, at the same time, Led Zeppelin were there with um, the original lineup, mm. and about four or five other bands all staying in the same hotel at the same time. So you can imagine, mm. it was pretty nuts. Um, TVs over the balconies and lots of. Uh, Young girls and lots of drugs and lots of you know, mm. all the stuff that you would used to uh, happen back then. One of the uh, favourite tracks that you collaborated on in in the, that, those relative uh, early years was uh, Claire Hamill's uh, version of Celluloid Heroes, and I think Claire was one of the first artists that you sort of featured on as as a guitarist. Yes, that's absolutely right. It was the first session I ever did, actually. Um, but I just happened to be there because it was recorded at Conk and I used to hang out there just to, you know, to be around music and to understand how records were made. And I used to sit at the back of the of the control room and stay out of the way and watch, watch the, what people were doing. And there was, there was a few great, they became chums actually, but other session players there. Mm. A guy called Philip Chen, who was, uh, was kind of the first cool bass player at the time, and uh, a drummer called Clem Catini, who played on everything. Yes. And they were putting tracks together, and I was, um, they w- they went out to dinner one night, and I was noodling away on, on a guitar in the studio, not knowing that there was someone in the control room. But uh, Claire heard me play, and she said, I like the way you play. Can you play on the next tune? And that was my sort of initiation into into doing sessions, and uh, it grew from there. Everybody's a dreamer, and everybody's a star, and everybody's in movies. It doesn't matter who you are. There are stars in every city, in every house, and on every street. And if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard. Their names are written in concrete Don't tread on Greta Garbo 
Some that you recognize, some that you've hardly heard 
never feel anything And celluloid heroes never really die I read in Session Man that it was through Tony Visconti that um, you got the call from David Bowie to go to Berlin. That's right. I was working uh, on a Ralph McTell track. What was the name of this studio? New Earth or something? I can't remember. But it was in London. And um, I guess I did something good because a few days later, there was a call from Berlin from David David Bowie to work on the Iggy Pop album, which uh, became a bit of a milestone album, actually. It was called The Idiot. And there were some some really interesting tracks on there. China Girl, the first version of China Girl was on the album. So it was it was a nice experience for me, and um, yeah, over in uh, Munich for, for for a week or so. When you listen to the idiot, it's got a, a range of styles, and and was it different as a, as a guitarist? Because when you listen to sort of night clubbing, for example, that's quite mm. a difference to say Ralph Mattel or even Claire Hamill. Well, that's what you know. A session man was expected to be. You know, you you, you never knew what you're going to walk into, and that that was kind of the challenge of it, really. At the time, um, it could be a you know country and western song. It could be a ballad. It could be an orchestral piece. It could be an advert. It could be a pop song. You know, you just never knew. And um, back in those days, I people would do two, three, or even four sessions, different sessions in a day. So um, I used to carry you know about six or seven guitars, a couple of amps, and. Uh, some pedals and bits and pieces just to cover myself for all eventualities. And, um, uh, you know, you would, uh, you do a sort of 10 to one and then you'd drive to a different studio with a different artist and do a two to five, etc. And sessions used to last three hours and that was the end of it. Yeah. 
One of the most interesting and, and brilliant pieces of music that I've heard you play on is El Shankar and, and Darlene from the Touch Me There album. How did you get involved with uh, Frank? Again, it was just one of those moments. Um, I was working a lot of the time with a, a lovely guy called Dave Marquis. Mm. Uh, he was one, you know, he was an established session guy. He'd been around for a lot longer than I had. And he used to just sort of uh, get me involved in all kinds of things. And, uh, and that was just another one. We we didn't know Frank Zappa was going to be there. Right. We arrived at Advision Studios at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning in in, in the centre of London and uh, set up and you know, got ready. And the, Frank Zappa was sitting at the desk. Mm. And that's the first we knew about it. And we, we got on very well with him. I liked him a lot. 
it was uh, we were able to experiment, and we, that, that album took about two weeks, I think. And uh, but we were able to experiment with sounds and um, and sort of uh, it was a very complicated track, the one you just mentioned on the album. It took three days to record that track actually, mm. because it was just such a complicated piece. Uh, and Simon Phillips was there as well, a lovely drummer. Yeah, yeah, it was good fun. You mentioned in Session Man, I mean, an artist that you've played quite a bit with, Joan Armour Trading, and um, when you first played with her on, on the To The Limit album, and there's the, the track there, which is kind of the title track, Bottom To The, the Top, but you had a really interesting story about um, the fact that that's a, a track that's got a reggae feel on, but was difficult for uh, the, the drummer Henry Spinetti to play. <laughs> yeah, it was a difficult moment for him. I mean, we were all getting on with track. great track. But it was um, what Glenn Jones was the producer, and he was looking for something particular, and and we, I think Henry was struggling with it a bit, 
So um, we took a little break, and Henry and Dave, it was Dave Mucky again. Henry and Dave went out back, and I think they smoked something to make them relax a bit. Hmm. And when he came back, we did it first take, uh, because he kind of th- threw the parts away and, and forgot about everything and just played. And that's that's what Grimm was looking for. He was looking for something fresh and and not not organised, and that's what we got. <laughs> and Joan, as an artist, um, could be quite sort of standoffish at times. She was a little. I think she's different now. Um, she's right. she's chilled out a bit now. But she was a bit tense back then, for whatever reason. Um, I mean, I, I never had a problem with her. We always got on okay. But I wouldn't ever say that she was a became a friend. Just put it that way. No, I've been saying there's something I have to prove. Keep on going, baby. No, I stop now. I'm bound. From the bottom to the top Gonna tell all of my friends Say I can run and then they try Some move more quickly And all they can stand the pain Others will sober
spent quite a bit of time with Eric Clapton, of course, and you know, we talked about the uh, the Dire Straits on every street tour, but the gigs at uh, the Royal Albert Hall must have been just as special to play there. I love the Albert Hall. I love playing there to this day. But playing there with Eric was just a divine experience, really. I mean, Eric was so relaxed there, and we all became very relaxed there. Um, we did it so many times. Um, over the space of a few years, we, we did it every every year, and then we did 15 nights there, and we did 24 nights there, sort of consecutive nights. So it became like home and um, just a very lovely place to be. The Albert's great because the audience are so close. They're all around you. And, um, you know, there's a great intimacy about the Albert, even though it's a massive gig. And once you get over the initial um, nerves of playing in, in a special arena like that, it's uh, it's a lovely place to be. I used to go down there early in the afternoon just so I could sit in the auditorium and soak it up. I loved it. I still love it. And on tracks like Bad Love, um, you and Eric seem to have a very sympathetic way of playing with each other, almost a unison in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, working with someone like Eric, and same with Mark, really, mm. you find, as a session player, you find the way to work with someone like that. You just don't get in the way. That's the that's the first key. Is to, you know, don't play too many you know, all the time. Let, let him or, you know, let him be the uh the the main guitarist of course and uh, you just sort of back him up when he needs it and that's what eric and i were able to establish after very quickly that you know i knew my place i knew when he was gonna solo and he he knew when he could uh lean on me if you like to uh to back him up and it, it became a you know, very natural process and he never really thought about it Things would happen spontaneously with Eric, uh, and so you suddenly find yourself playing a solo where you never played one before, hmm. which was great fun. You know, it's always very exciting. Thank you. 
albums that doesn't get as much credit as it should do is the spin one two album and, and versions you know new versions of, of songs like can't find my way home uh, it's such an incredible lineup that uh, you helped to bring together for that project yes um spin one two was a, the nearest i have got up to this point was to the solo album i mean that's how it started off i, I was I had a friend at uh, sony music in Milan, and he said, we sat down over dinner one night, and he said, okay, you should do a solo album. I said, I'm not going to do a solo album. I'll, I'll do this kind of format. And we, we wrote down on a, on a napkin, you know, basically, you know, what I would like to do, who I would like to be in the band. They uh, Sony financed it. We put it together really quick, and uh, it was it was a lovely album. And um, it's yeah, it still gets a lot of um, feedback. That album, uh, it's become a, a bit of a cult album. And um, we individually, I mean, Steve Ferroni, Tony Levin, and Paul Carrick, you know, got a nice lineup. And we we keep thinking that we'd like to do another one, but I mean, it's already what twenty five years after the first one. <laughs> Spin one two two could still happen, and yeah, we never know. You never know. 
Santa Claus. Um, it'd be great just to talk about Trevor Horn because um, on his uh, reimagined the eighties album, there's uh, Trevor Horn featuring Simple Minds. But actually, uh, you and uh, Alan Clark, as well as Trevor and Simple Minds, do a version of Brothers in Arms as well. So that must have been really nice to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, Trevor's become a good mate. He's part of the, the Dire Straits legacy just because he likes to play you know he's a bass player Trevor's you know mm. an amazing producer but he started off as a session bass player back in the in the 70s so you know our grounding our, our you know we, we grew up with the same stuff really so yeah um, I'm going to see Trevor later on today and we're going for dinner and run at his place and it's an ongoing kind of friendship and uh, we look forward to working together on whatever Trevor does these days and uh, he's part of the Dire Straits legacy, so we'll be on the road together soon. Brilliant. And what are you, your future plans? I assume you, you, you're just recording as well as looking forward to the, the DSL dates. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it was a difficult year, um, I think, for everybody. But I was I managed to keep fairly busy uh, doing remote sessions because I, I live in Rome these days, in Italy. Right. And uh, <clears throat> I have a local studio where I can... Um, go and sort of uh, do sessions and stuff without moving country and uh, that was very useful I did a few tracks for for Trevor for for Rod Stewart uh, in that way and then I did recently I did an album for Ronan Keating in the same way where he was in Dublin and I was in Rome and we uh, we recorded in that way I sent the files over he, he sang on them and uh, it's just come out I think that album just ah. last few days all the very best with, with those projects and, and Dire Straits Legacy um, brilliant it's a great idea and it's a, a great way of keeping the the, the music alive of, of Dire Straits as well as um, certainly in the Dire Straits type band setting yes it is we, we thoroughly enjoy it and uh, we look forward to, to playing Mark songs in, in front of big audiences again that's uh, where they deserve to be absolutely well uh, thanks very much Phil uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you Thanks a lot, Jason. All right, then. Bye-bye. Cheers, mate. Bye. Suffering now, 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.